This is the Woodland Hills Family Church Podcast. Our desire is to inspire you and your family to become fully devoted followers of Christ. Now, enjoy today's message with Travis Bronner. We're continuing series, uh, Glad and Sincere Hearts. Uh, this is about our church, Woodland Hills, um, and uh, things about our church that you may know, may not know. We talk about things in starting point, but um, it's been a while since we've covered some things about our church. And so we're doing that in this series. Um, last week, we talked about the five purposes of the church, which, by the way, are also the five purposes for your life and for my life. Um, today, we're talking about the ordinances of the church. This is part two, and then next week, we'll continue with the generosity of our church. But today, we're talking about ordinances. And so as we do that first, let's talk about the word ordinance and what an ordinance is. An ordinance is a Christian right. And I don't mean like a R-I-G-H-T, like a constitutional right to bear arms or to free speech, but an R-I-T-E, and a right is a ceremonial act. So we, we get that an ordinance is a Christian right or a ceremonial act that we participate in. And we know uh, what ceremonies are. We participated in ceremonies. We, we see ceremonies frequently, and they are in order to declare or recognize something, acknowledge something. And with ceremonies, what we know is the thing is not the thing. Right? So let me give a couple of uh, examples of what I mean. This is Michael Phelps, one of the most decorated Olympians of all time. 23 gold medals, not to mention other medals that he received. But for Michael Phelps, when he would go and receive one of his gold medals at this ceremony, he's not known for gold medal ceremonies. He's known for swimming. Right? So the thing is not the thing. And then next is Michael Jordan, unarguably the greatest basketball player of all time. Okay, good. Everybody agrees. At his Hall of Fame induction ceremony. Now, Michael Jordan is not known for being inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame. He's known for the way that he played basketball. He transformed the game of basketball. He was great at basketball. So the thing in a ceremony is not actually the thing. Now, some people, when talking about ordinances in the church, talk about sacraments or use the word sacrament. And this is a good word for us to look at to to help us understand. See, a sacrament is an outward or visible indication of something intangible or invisible. And why that's important is you can't see a belief but you can see the expression of a belief. And then when we work, look closer at the word ordinance, we know that the root of ordinance is ordain, which means to set apart. So looking at all this, we, we then know that an ordinance is a ceremonial act set apart as an outward indication of something that's invisible or intangible. And so as we are looking at the ordinances of our church, the question arises, how many ordinances do we have? And some churches, some denominations will have many, many ordinances, some seven or even more ordinances that they participate in. And I think it's important for us to make a distinction between an ordinance and a tradition. You see, as we look at traditions, there are a lot of traditions in the church. And let's look at a little bit of church history to see how that came about. You see, in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, there was God's chosen nation, Israel, and, and God had a lot of ceremonial acts for them to follow and to participate in. Then came Christ, the Messiah. And Jesus said, I came to fulfill the law. All of these things that they were required to do, he came to fulfill that. And so what Jesus really did is simplified the faith, right? He fulfilled all of those ceremonial acts that they were to participate in. And then Christ died, he was buried, he resurrected, and ascended to be into heaven. And before he left, he established his church. And that is the age that we live in now, the church age, waiting for one day when Christ returns. 
And so in that 2,000 years since Christ established the church, and we talked a lot about it last week in Acts 2, the outline of the church and, and, and what they did and the five purposes of the church, from, from that time until now, a lot of traditions have been added, 2,000 years worth of traditions, and they st- seem to continue to, to be added. Maybe even in your lifetime, you've seen traditions added to the church that we participate in. And so what can happen, what we have to be careful about is in, in the same way, that all of these traditions were added, we can forget about the main thing being the main thing. And so my wife, Carrie, has an illustration that I think perfectly uh, describes this, what we can get, fall into with the church. And I compare it to a family and Christmas traditions. You see, when we first got married, our new family, just the two of us, we both came from our family of origin. We had our traditions that we participated in, but now it's just the two of us. And what are the traditions that we're going to have and our new family. And so the first year we decorated a Christmas tree. That was really the only thing I can remember that we did around Christmas time as a tradition for our family. And the next year we said, Christmas Eve, we're, we're going to have kind of a formal meal together. We're going to get out the nice china. We're going to cook a meal and, and, and have this. It's just a, a tradition that we have. And now 25 years and four kids later, you know the number of traditions that we have because you have them too. They just get added on and added on, Right? And what can happen at Christmas time is you forget that the main thing is the main thing. You get caught up in the traditions of it. Jesus came to simplify our faith. And if we're not careful, we can let the traditions that are added in the church get us distracted from keeping the main thing the main thing. So we have a lot of traditions that we participate in, some that I really like. uh, And a great American tradition that is one of my favorites is this right here. The Oreo cookie. Introduced in the United States in 1912, which happens to be the same year that the city of Branson, Missouri was founded. Coincidence? I don't think so. And so we have the Oreo cookie that was introduced, and it became a tradition, and is now the, the, the number one selling cookie worldwide. And so when it, when it was introduced, though, it was just like this, just simple. It, it, two chocolate wafer cookies with a, a, a vanilla frosting center. And then over time, though, they started messing with the original, didn't they? Who remembers the double, double stuff? It was like the first thing that they did. And, and amen, indeed. Um, hopefully you amen more than Oreos today. So then they, then they made the thin Oreo. And then they made like the cake wafers. And, and then now, now we're getting into chocolate filling and mint filling. I want to eat an Oreo, not be brushing my teeth. And, and it just it, it got really messed up. But then we get back to the original Oreo, and there are different ways to eat the Oreo, right? I mean, some, some will maybe just uh, take a, a bite of it. It's kind of a small cookie to take a bite of, but okay. Maybe you just pop it in your mouth and eat the whole cookie. And then some of you get real crazy. See if I can do it. I didn't do it. You peel it apart. You twist it apart. And the goal there is to leave the frosting on one side and then lick the frosting, right? Okay? But then with all of that... It doesn't really matter because, let's be honest, the most important thing is that the milk, the cookie has its milk, the Oreo has its milk, and we have different ways of doing this as well. Some will take a bite, sip of milk, take a bite, sip of milk. Some of you will dip the cookie in the milk, but you're, you're kind of uncommitted. You do just a little bit of this, right? Not the whole cookie in the milk. And then some of you know the right way to eat an Oreo cookie. You take the whole cookie... You dunk it all the way in the milk with both your fingers, hold it for 4.28 seconds. You take it out and you eat the entire cookie, right? 
And, and you may say, it's messy, and I don't know, and if, if you think it's messy and, and you're not willing to do it, I just say you're not committed to the Oreo. But then some, some go a little too far. You throw the Oreo in the milk for some undetermined amount of time, and then you go fish it out later and eat it. And I think that's just irresponsible. We respect the Oreo, right? The Oreo is, is one tradition. We have a lot of traditions here in our church, here at Woodland Hills Family Church. We have a lot of traditions. Christmas in the courtyard last month that we did, and we love that tradition. It's, it's becoming a favorite of a lot of people. We go all out for Mother's Day and for Father's Day, for Independence Day. Also, Super Bowl Sunday is coming up, which has become kind of a tradition around here. Kind of helps when your team's winning, but... Uh, Super Bowl Sunday is a fun time for us, and traditions are good, and here's why traditions are good. These are all traditions, these things that I just numbered there. Traditions are good because they can be a vehicle through which we can fulfill the purposes of the church, worship, fellowship, discipleship, evangelism, and ministry. All of those things can be fulfilled through traditions, and traditions can be good in that way, but they are still traditions, and they are not set apart ordinances. So we get back to the question, how many ordinances do we have? And we, Woodland Hills, as well as most Protestant churches, participate in and recognize two ordinances. They are baptism and communion. Now, some of you may refer to it as the Lord's Supper, and these are interchangeable, communion and the Lord's Supper being the same thing. So why do we recognize these two uh, ordinances among all of the traditions, some of which may be considered ordinances? It's real simple, because they were commanded and modeled by Christ. Remember that an ordinance is something that's set apart. And in the years of traditions that are added, some of the traditions may be set apart, but set apart by man, set apart by people in churches. But these two we recognize as ordinances that were set apart, set apart by Christ because he commanded and modeled them. Now, speaking of the church, last week we talked about the five purposes. This week we're talking about the ordinances and what we're really getting into with this series is kind of the essential elements of a church and why we adhere to these things. Remember, Christ came to simplify our faith. And so we want to kind of look at the, the simple elements of what, what a church is and, and express the importance of those things. And they're simple, but they are, there are still essential elements. We have the purposes, we have the ordinances, and we're also elder-led. And we recognize that, that these are important elements of a church and traditions can vary, and, and we have a lot of people here uh, at Woodland Hills. We are regularly now having about 2,500 people on any given Sunday, um, and, and special days, Easter is 3,500. We're just seeing numbers grow. Again, we don't seek numbers. We seek health. We try to keep it simple and stay healthy and, and grow as the Lord leads us. But imagine, though, if every single one of us on a Sunday, 2,500 of us, came in and had a tradition that we wanted to adhere to. 2,500 traditions on a Sunday morning would be very cumbersome. And that's why we try to keep it simple, recognizing, yes, we can use traditions in the right way, but they can be burdensome. We want to keep the main thing the main thing. The ordinances point us to the main thing. So with baptism and communion then, uh, the, you know that we have our essential beliefs here at Woodland Hills, and so the question then comes up, are communion and baptism, are they essential to our faith? Are communion and, ba and baptism essential? And so it, it's kind of a tricky question because the answer is yes and no. And let me explain. Yes, because Christ commanded us to participate in these ordinances, making it yes, it's, a, it's a essential to us. But the traditions and how we participate in them are not essential. 
But the most essential thing about baptism and communion are how they relate to a broader belief, one of our essential beliefs. And we're going to work through that just a little bit now. So that belief is salvation. Now, salvation implies that you're being saved from something. What are you being saved from? You're being saved from the consequences of a sin condition that we're all born into. What are the consequences of that? It's separation from God. Separation now and in eternity. Death, yes, but spiritual death by separation from God. That is what we are saved from. I'm going to go through these real quickly, but then explain them a little bit deeper. Salvation is obtained by faith in Christ. That's it. That's the only way to obtain salvation. Salvation is evident by the fruit of the Spirit and obedience. Salvation is expressed by baptism, and salvation is remembered by communion. First off, salvation is obtained by faith in Christ. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father. No one is unseparated from the, the Father except through me, said Jesus. It's evident by the fruit of the Spirit and obedience. Galatians 5.22 gives us the fruit of the Spirit. When we receive Christ, we receive an indwelling of the Holy Spirit. When you have an indwelling of the Holy Spirit, fruit of the Spirit should flow from you. They are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Evident by the fruit of the Spirit. John 13, 35, Jesus said that you will, people will know that you're my disciples by the way you love one another. Love being, again, the first attribute listed in the fruit of the Spirit. And then John 14, 15 Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commands. Part of his commands are participating in the ordinances of baptism and communion. Expressed by baptism, this is a visible indication of an intangible confession or belief. And then remembered by communion. It keeps our salvation top of mind for us. And so when we look then at this outline, we understand that baptism does not save me. Salvation comes through faith in Christ, not through baptism. In communion, just because I participate in communion, it's not evidence that I'm saved, right? So we, we keep the, the, the ordinances in their place by understanding the, the greater importance of salvation and how they relate to it. It puts the ordinances in their rightful place. Now, as you participate in the ordinances then here at Woodland Hills or any other church or any other place, you need to understand something. You don't need any organization to confirm or affirm your salvation. Because you may go to a church or have been in a church that said, that's great that you have chosen to follow Christ. Now you need to do this, 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 and this. You need Jesus plus these things in order to be saved. You need to know that's not true. Salvation is through faith alone in Christ alone. Now, the other side of that coin is we say we're not dependent on the ordinances for my salvation. The other side of that coin is your Savior, the one who saved you, the one by whom you can come to the Father, your Savior commands you to participate in the ordinances, and thereby we understand the ordinances. With the ordinances also, remember Michael Jordan's not known for being inducted into the Hall of Fame, nor Michael Phelps for, uh, for the gold medal ceremonies. That's not what they're known for. They're known for, for their, their sports, Right? In the same way, you're not known for being baptized. You're not known for participating in communion. If you've come to salvation, you're known by your creator because of his son. That's what you're known for. The main thing is the main thing. So let's look at baptism specifically now as we go through both of these ordinances in a little deeper discussion. Baptism is one of our favorite times because of what it represents. It is the salvation. It is a, a, a sinner repenting 
and, and knowing Christ. And so this is a collage of a few pictures of recent baptism, um, and, and we just love it. We, you know, when, when someone comes up out of the water, we cheer because Scripture says when, when a sinner repents, the angels rejoice. And, and to me, that's a wonderful picture and celebration together of what's taking place literally in heaven when someone confesses faith in Christ. And remember, this is a, a tangible display, an expression of something intangible. And what people are, are giving is their testimony. A testimony is a story, and we all have a story. As many people that show up here, that watch online, that, that, that hear the word, have a story. Everyone has a story to tell, and that's what the testimony is. And with all of these people getting baptized, each of them has a different story from one another. And there may be a lot of different reasons, or a few different reasons at least, that people choose to get baptized. Because it's this expression that they're wanting to make. Some have just recently, for the first time, placed faith in Christ. And they want to follow in baptism and make that expression. Some were saved long ago. And baptism was never emphasized as important to them. And so you may hear this baptism thing is an important thing. I placed faith in Christ years and years ago. I think I need to follow in baptism. And, and, and we, may, we simply don't know. All you see is the expression that they're making. And uh, if you were saved long ago, again, we see some people that are older, some that are younger. Some may have been saved for, for decades and decades, but they're making the decision to follow in baptism. Some will come back. Uh, and, and rededicate their lives. Maybe you were saved years ago, you followed the Lord, you fell from the Lord. You didn't live according, you didn't follow the commands of Christ and, and, and you denied Christ and, and you walked away from the Lord and you have come back and you want to rededicate your life and you want to be baptized to express that symbolism. And that's okay because we get the question, well, I was baptized before, but this has happened in my life and I want to be baptized again to, to make this rededication and that's okay. Because we get the question, how many times can I be baptized? Well, there's not a number. But if you keep coming back over and over and over, we might hold you under the water a little bit longer <laughs> because we want to make sure that you get the point. But the point, even more importantly, is this. That once you have placed faith in Christ, you are saved. We believe that you are sealed by the Holy Spirit. You didn't, you didn't come to the Father by something you did, but rather by something the Son did. And in the same way, you can't do anything to lose your salvation because the Lord has you in his grip. You are sealed by the Spirit. And if you're wanting to come be baptized again, we're great with that. But you need to understand, salvation is not through baptism. You're not getting resaved. Okay? So real important to us to understand that just practically speaking. Baptism, as we are telling our story, baptism is telling the best part of each person's story. All of those people on there have that in common. All different stories, but the, the main point is the main point, salvation. And that's what baptism is all about. Baptism is set apart because it was modeled and commanded by Christ. Now, let's look at that specifically. First, the fact that it was modeled by Christ. For that, we're going to turn to Matthew 3, verses 13 through 17. It said, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him. Why did John try to deter Jesus from getting baptized by John? John knew who Jesus was. And in fact, John knew who Jesus was from the moment they were in the womb. Remember when Mary visited Elizabeth and they were both pregnant, Mary with Jesus and Elizabeth with John. John leaped in Elizabeth's womb. Why? Because she knew that the Messiah had just walked into his presence. And so that baby, John, at that moment knew who he was. And throughout his life, a few people did know who Jesus was. Mary knew, of course, John knew, and John's saying, I'm not worthy to be baptized by you. And he said, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? And Jesus replied, 
Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. When you look at verse 16, you notice something, that Jesus was baptized by water immersion because he came up out of the water. That's why we participate in water immersion baptism, because it was what was modeled by Jesus. And so what we can guarantee from that is that Jesus would have fully dunked his Oreo cookie (laughs) for 4.28 seconds, give or take, and taken it out. Well, keeping with the Oreo illustration, though, that's a little bit messy, isn't it? My fingers get messy. It kind of drips. But what we need to understand about baptism and what it represents in salvation is that salvation is messy. When you look at how we can be saved through Christ and what was endured, what the Father did in giving us his Son and what his Son endured, it's messy. And and we know the physical account of what Christ went through in his crucifixion. He was beaten, he was crucified, hung on a cross to die. But think about the relational and emotional and spiritual aspects of what he endured. It was messy. He was wrongfully accused by his community. He, he was betrayed uh, and, and, and abandoned by his friends. He was forsaken by his father for our salvation. That's pretty messy. We know that our salvation comes through messy consequences, messy circumstances. Now, the other thing about this, the way that Jesus modeled, look at the timing of it. Because for his first 30 years, again, a few people knew who he was. And Mary, his mom, even said to him at a, at a wedding ceremony, when they were running low on wine, he said, do something about this, because she knew that he could. And he said, now's not the time for people to know who I am. He knew it wasn't time for his ministry yet. Yet at his baptism, he comes to John to make this profession of who he is. And the father himself says, this is my son whom I love. He is declaring to the world who he is. And in the same way, the symbolism is there, that we are declaring to the world who we are. Not just who we are, but whose we are. We are committed to Christ in coming for baptism. Now, we have many traditions around baptism. Some of you may have been in in an elevated baptismal in the front of the church with a plexiglass that awkwardly made everybody see you underwater uh, with a white robe on. Um, Some of you may be in a tub uh, on a stage like we do. And if that's the case, then maybe you were fortunate enough to get baptized after we invested in the heater for the tub. Um, uh, if not, and you were before that, and you think your water was cold, uh, I was baptized in Lake Tanicomo. Um, and uh, that will elicit a hallelujah when you come out of the water, for sure. Uh, we've done baptisms in lakes and in creeks and, and in Tanicomo and in the city pool and different places and in a lot of different ways that we have participated in, in this ordinance. But... But more important than the traditions around the method is the expression that the person is making. And so let's look at this symbolic expression in two passages. First in Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The point in this passage is that the Christian life is one of sacrifice. It's not one of entitlement. It's not one of elite status. The Christian life is one of sacrifice. And symbolism here is that Christ went into the grave. We go into the water. I am crucified with Christ. His sacrifice is atonement for me. I do this with him. 
Christ went into the grave, we go into the water. And then Matthew 16, 24 through 25, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You see, Christ rose out of the grave in the same way we raise out of the water, to walk in newness of life, having laid our life down so that we can find life in Christ. And that is the symbolism that we find in baptism. Now, a difficult discussion that we have a lot of times is uh, other types of baptisms or other people that get baptized. And specifically, I want to talk for a few minutes about infants and children. And some of you may have uh, come from a tradition where uh, infants were baptized. And so uh, that uh, looks a little bit different. And for that, we introduce the Oreo Mini. <laughs> the gas station favorite, right? The Oreo Mini, but that's going to look a little bit different because we're going to keep the Oreo Mini here and we're going to go to the milk. We're going to get a little bit on our fingers and we're just going to sprinkle some milk on the Oreo Mini because that's how the Oreo Mini works, right? But, but here's the thing about the Oreo Mini. It's not the original, right? You see that? It's not the original. It's not, it, it wasn't modeled and commanded by Christ, and when we remember what baptism is, and it's an expression of understanding and faith and following Christ, and we know that babies don't understand and are not able to make that profession of faith. And so that's why we don't participate in infant baptism. Children, it gets a little more difficult, just like in life, right? Children make things more difficult. But as our kids are younger and they can start to talk and communicate and get information and learn things and know facts, and then as they get older, they can start piecing facts together and understand things. And that's why uh, we partner with you. You, parents, grandparents, guardians of your children, are primary disciplers of your children. And we're here to come alongside you and continue to plant seeds of faith in the children's and, and kids' ministries. And we're hoping that you're doing that as well at home, speaking truth to them as you lie down, as you wake up in the morning, as you walk along the way. Because they need to know truth, because one day they will be able to understand. And that's the salvation of a child, because baptism is an expression of salvation, Right? And so when is a kid supposed to get baptized? When they have understood, have understood their unrighteousness, have placed faith in Christ knowing that they need him. And that's when they can make that expression. Those are hard conversations. We all know it. If you've had kids, you know it's hard conversations, hard to know and understand. But, but again, we're here to partner with you, and that's why we have the Start Here class that is coming up on February 18th. Um, is our class where uh, Stephanie Watson and the children's team will come alongside you, help have those discussions. If you have a, a kid that wants to be baptized, uh, we encourage you to sign up for this class and, and participate that, and we want to come alongside you with that. Because February 25th, we are having baptism celebration here uh, as, we, as we do several times throughout the year. And so if you want to decide to be baptized, if you want to come before your church and make a, a, a declaration for any of those reasons that we talked about, we encourage you uh, to do that, to participate in baptism with us. And we're, we're grateful for that coming up. So baptism was modeled and it was commanded. Matthew twenty eight nineteen shows us that it was commanded. Go therefore, this is Jesus, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, it was commanded, go and do this. Let's look now at the Lord's Supper, uh, the second of the ordinances. Uh, in, uh, for that, again, communion is equivalent to the Lord's Supper. These phrases are interchangeable. Um, this is a ceremonial meal. 
that was instituted by Jesus at the time of the Jewish Passover. That's where this tradition stems from. He was celebrating the Passover the night that he was to be betrayed and beaten and crucified. And uh, he instituted this, this sacred meal, this set-apart meal, uh, to his disciples for us to participate in. Now, if uh, you have your Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians 11, or you can follow along in the app or on the screen. We're going to spend the rest of the time there. In 1 Corinthians 11, this is Paul's account of the institution of the Lord's Supper by Jesus. And so he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. That's a big sentence there. Number one, do this. Why? In remembrance of me. We're commanded to do it. Why? To remember him. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So <clears throat> when he tells us, do this, who is he talking to? He's talking to followers of Jesus. So who should take communion? Followers of Jesus. It's real simple. If you are a follower of Jesus, you should participate in communion. If you have confessed and believed in Christ, you should participate. Now, why is this ceremony limited to believers in Christ? First Corinthians eleven twenty six. then the next verse says, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What are we doing when we eat the bread and drink the cup of communion? We are declaring the Lord's death that we understand and we are proclaiming uh, Christ in our lives. This is an expression of faith. Now, we know that you shouldn't express one thing that you don't believe. And, and for the, the, the non-believer that may be here, you're new to church or you don't understand this person of Jesus or, or the importance of him and how this all fits together with salvation and things like that. And that can sound a little bit harsh and a little exclusive as, as you may come in here and, and, and we're telling you not to participate in this. But the reason we don't want you to participate in it is because is an expression. We don't want you to express something that you don't believe because we know that to be hypocrisy and we know how God feels about hypocrisy. As a matter of fact, Jesus' greatest charge against the Pharisees was hypocrisy, saying one thing and doing another. So to take communion without profession of faith in Christ is hypocrisy. And going on in verse 27, it says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. That's why we say we want you, if you are not a follower of Jesus, just to observe, just, just to watch that part of our, our gathering and not participate. But here's the thing. Um, again, that can sound a little off-putting when we say we don't want you to do this. It's not that we don't want you to do this. And it, it, we, we don't want you to hear is you can't participate because you are not worthy to sit at this table. Because here's the thing. None of us is worthy to sit at this table. It is by the body and the blood of Christ that we are able to sit at this table. So our prayer would be that you would come to an understanding of a sin condition that you would confess and that you would believe and place faith in Christ so that you can join us at this table so that you can be near God again now and into eternity. What you need to know is there is always room at the table. God desires that everyone should repent and be saved. Now, let's talk about a, a couple of practical aspects of taking the Lord's Supper. How do we take communion? Uh, and so we're going to look just kind of like literally and practically at the, at the, the things here. And so we at Woodland Hills participate with Welches and Wafers, I like to call it, in this little kind of set that you may sometimes find yourself not able to get the juice open and, and because do I turn it upside down? But wait a minute, now I'm pouring it. So it can be a little tricky. We get it. But uh, Welches and Wafers. And by the way, did you know that, that uh, uh, Welch's grape juice was invented by Dr. Welch? 
a Methodist dentist who went all in with prohibition and said alcohol had no place in the church. So he invented an alcohol-free drink similar to wine to bring into the church for communion. Yet another example that we see from 150, 200 years ago brought into the church and changed the way. I, I grew up with the Welches and Wafers type, and you might have as well, but we see how, how traditions can change things in the church over the years. Now, some of you uh, may be used to or have participated where it's one glass and everybody drinks from it. And some of you are disgusted by that. (laughs) Germaphobes, right? And COVID created a whole new brand of germaphobes. We're all concerned about drinking from the same glass now. And some maybe had the glass but broke off a piece of bread and dipped it into the glass. And and, and these we call the elements, the bread, the wafers and the welches, the bread and the wine or the juice or whatever you use. There there are different traditions that are are wrapped up into those, and we call these the substances. And we have different traditions in the substances of communion, but the important thing to understand that the substances of communion are inconsequential, but the condition of the heart matters. Regardless of what you literally use to take communion, the condition of the heart is the most important thing. God is more concerned about remembering Christ than how we take the elements. 1 Corinthians 11, continuing into verses 28 and 29, says, Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment upon themselves. As with everything else, God is most concerned of the heart. And so as we look at the 1 Corinthians 11, you may have read through that before, and we talk about drinking judgment upon yourself and doing this in an unworthy manner. And you may just assign that to someone who's not a believer in taking communion. But I want you to remember that God, that Paul is writing to believers here. And we as believers can take communion in an unworthy manner. And we can drink judgment on ourselves because of not coming to the Lord's table, the Lord's supper in a worthy manner. That's why we always have a time of reflection where we pause for a moment because that's our time to, to recognize unrepentant sin in our lives to, again, what are we doing? We're remembering the body and the blood of Christ, doing this in a worthy manner, not, not, not treating this flippantly like this is just some tradition that we have in the church. This, this is an ordinance. It was set apart by Christ himself. So we always take a, a time of reflection so that we can prepare our hearts to take communion in, in a worthy manner. So there you have our two ordinances, baptism and communion. Why are they our ordinances, the ones that we recognize? Because they were modeled and commanded by Christ. He is the one that set them apart. We have a lot of traditions in our church, but we have the ordinances that Jesus said, do these. Remember me by this. Express me by this. Express who you are and whose you are by this. And while the traditions, uh, the, the ordinances can be drenched with different traditions, that's not the point. The main point is the main point, proclaiming and remembering Jesus for who he is, what he has done, what he continues to do, and he will continue to do in atoning us to the Father. And for that, we're grateful. Let's pray together. Father, we love you, and we're grateful uh, to get together this morning. And uh, for those in the chaplain online, we're grateful for everyone that is joining us. And uh, Lord, we're grateful for the ordinances and the way that you have outlined uh, a, a simple way that we can express faith in you and that we can remember you. I pray that we would not take the ordinances lightly, Lord, that, but that we would 
prepare our hearts before taking communion, that we would understand salvation before expressing it. Give us discernment with our kids as they learn facts and can put things together and that they can understand and place faith in your son Christ. Uh, lead us at the, at the uh, class for the kids that, uh, that the parents and grandparents would know, Lord, and that we would continue to walk alongside them, that we would teach truth to our kids so that one day they can know and that they can follow in baptism. We're grateful uh, for a gathering. We're uh, praying, Lord, for safety for those that aren't here. And as the weather is upon us, Lord, that you would protect each of us. And most uh, of all, Lord, that you would help us to remember uh, your son, what he's done for us and what it means for us in our salvation. For that, we're grateful. We love you and we give you praise in Christ's name. Amen.